0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by Peter Espensky. Today we are discussing Chapter 19. This is Part 2. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast, and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. I think Spensky's big point here is that while science only looks at object, objective existence, something exists, if, if it's objective we can measure it, it's missing so much. It's, you know, for example... We all know good and evil exist, but they don't exist in the same way as table and chairs exist.
1: Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You, you can't say that. You just say, I'm That's not going to let that. I don't care what he said. This Yeah, I don't care. You, you, just, you just quoted him. I'm going to criticise that. Good and evil, abstract concepts. One man's evil is another man's good. And one man's evil is another man's indifference.
0: Okay so I'm telling, he's poor, I'm telling he's, you right now a, I'm telling
1: you right now that the Einsatzgruppen that went through Belarus and Ukraine in 1941 did not think that what they were doing was evil. Um you know in their minds they were doing great work. So w- when we say that we know good and evil exists do we really know? We put labels on things. This this is good, this is evil. But what you what you say is good and what you say is evil isn't isn't what I might think, or somebody else might think. So let's not say that good. We know that good and evil exist because we don't. They they are not objective. They are not universal concepts. They are subjective concepts.
0: Right, and I'm not disagreeing with you at all. No, well, we I can, I, I, I just saying. don't think
1: that we. I don't think that that phrase "we know that good and evil exist" is true. I don't think that it can. You can just let that go,
0: especially in the context in which he uses it. Well, the context in which he uses it, he is saying, you know it, it's, he's not defining what good and evil are. He's I saying didn't say he was. that yeah, well, neither did I. but what he's, what he's Nor saying did I is that they, just let me finish, would you? What he's saying no. is that they exist differently to what a table and chair exist. He's saying his point is without getting into what are good and evil. That there these there are things that we know exist and I'll use a different example. Maybe we can say um the contents of a book exist, but they exist differently to a table and chair existing. And science I is only looking at one. Well or I'll I'll give you my second one. So No, that was uh, it. and I only used I used the good and evil because it was part of Spensky's um paragraph, but yep, so the thing is, he's saying that all metaphysical facts exist, but they don't exist objectively. And science is looking for things that exist objectively to say this is this is what is actually existing. Mm. So they're, they're missing a whole slice, many slices of the pie by narrowing themselves into that rut. That's what that was his point.
1: I'm just going to say that I that good and evil don't exist at all. they are just circumstances and events there's only there's only the the, it's only the perception of circumstance that you then label good or bad let me tell you for thousands and thousands of years slavery was considered to be not considered to be good you know the the people that everyone reveres oh they invented democracy as though democracy is worth anything Um, and the Athenian Greeks let me tell you about the Athenian Greeks Um, And it's clear in the writings of Plato, in writings of all the philosophers, they make it quite clear that it is absolutely essential for slavery to be the basis of the economic life of any group of human beings, because it means that the greater men, by the way, this is where we get the word aristocrat from, the rule of the good, the great and the good, aristos good it is so that good men can spend their days perfecting their bodies and then sitting around talking about philosophy literally that and slavery was considered to be not only the greatest good but absolutely essential to that to that process and that by the way that was the common acceptance of good for much 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 longer than it's being considered to be evil. The idea of slavery being considered evil is such a very modern concept. I will always point out where I think that he's just saying words without thinking them and I think this is one of the examples. We know that good and evil exists. We know no such thing, Mr. Wyspensky. We do not know that at all. You've just written down what you think people accept. Unfortunately, what it does demonstrate is that, and by the way, none of us are are perfect, I don't think. Um, But what it does demonstrate is that he doesn't subject some of his own beliefs to the things that he's saying. He's taken that as a given without investigating it. And if he investigated it, he would very quickly, because he's not stupid by any stretch, is he? Is he? No, I don't think. Otherwise, we've no, wasted a lot of that. weeks doing this. Yeah, uh, yeah. He would easily, he would easily understand that he can't actually prove or justify that we know good and evil exists. We don't know anything of the kind. We can, we, we, from our perception, can label something as good or label something as evil, and a lot of people may agree with that perception. They may have the same perception. Doesn't make it. Doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it ex- uh, provable that it exists many many times the vast majority of humanity have changed their perception and the one the the re- the reason that i gave slavery is because it's an obvious one where where humanity so are you
0: are are you arguing against the the concept of good and evil or
1: no no I'm, I'm very precise in what i say he says we know that there are good and evil
0: no he says in my book such logical concepts as good evil truth beauty matter motion and so forth exist he's talking about although yeah okay yeah well
1: they're not logical concepts for a start good and evil as i've just suggested is not a logical concept it's not mathematically provable Um, it's just two two opposite labels that other people that many many people could differ about and argue about and the mass of humanity has been shifting its perceptions of what it considers to be good and evil. I mean, it's been directed into shifting them um, on many issues. I gave one. I gave one that's big and strong and demonstrably shifted. And like I say, for the, the vast majority of recorded history, slavery wasn't considered to be evil at all. And by the way, neither was genocide, let me tell you that's another modern concept that's another modern concept it was considered to be sometimes a necessary good to destroy whole rafts of human beings you live in a country where the British did that they they actively engaged in genocide Um, Americans will also be living in a country where largely the British influenced it um, genocide took place on a scale on a scale insurmountable. What happened in the Second World War, that was the turning point when slavery and genocide became the biggest evils that you could ever conceive of. We'd already abolished slavery in the West, although we turned a blind eye to it and still do in the developing world and the undeveloping world, Um, but the perception is these are the great evils mankind is changing its mind all the time i'm saying that you you can't say that as that, that even as a concept that there is good and evil there is only a perception of good and evil as a concept
0: okay yeah well that
1: and that's not the, yeah. that's not quite the same thing you know that's that's my point i i do wish that that a different example had been used there and that those words hadn't been used i do know where he's coming from but do you know something that's not enough when you're dealing with philosophy, you've got to be a little more precise than that, because people can accept the words uncritically and then go down a totally different path.
0: So I'll tell you a little story. So after the Second World War back you know way back when uh, my father owned a pharmacy in uh, a country town. and so it's just after the war and into the pharmacy a German guy comes in, walks up to the counter and says to the to the shop assistant, "You know, I want XYZ or whatever it was he wanted to buy." And the shop assistant just stood there and stared at him. And my father kind of looked over and, like, what's going on here? And she looked at him and said, but you're the enemy. And he looked back at her and said, no, you're the enemy. And I thought, there you go. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) It's all about perception. So, you know, who was good and who was evil? Well, both, if you looked at the perception. Both both the the enemy. enemy." and they're both the good guys like they're both they're both the same one and the same thing depending on the point of view or the perception absolutely anyway but i get your point so well i think not to lose a spensky's point let's just talk about there are different things the things are existing in different ways the contents of a book exists as does a chair and table but they exist differently and that's what he's saying once we once science is only looking at the things that that exist objectively again it's a narrowly defined form of existence and it doesn't uh, by any means exhaust or comprehend existence as a whole so it is it is never going to find the essence of anything because it's it's only looking it's it's almost like that example of the warehouse it's just shining a torch in the corner and and saying, that's all that exists over there in the corner where I've got my torch shining and, and ignoring the rest.
1: That's right. And that's what science does.
0: That's what science does. So let's move on. Um, Spensky now starts talking about objectivity and subjectivity. And he gives a couple of definitions, and I will paraphrase. So in essence, he's saying that objectivity is a small number of facts we have segregated into a into a definite group like the objective world and subjectivity is something that we feel directly so he's not saying that subjectivity can't be can't be grouped together but he's saying that subjectivity is um is more about the feeling and objectivity is more about the grouping of a, a whole series of things in calling it one. So, this is his example when we look at subjectivity. This is the example you talked about before. Um, my toothache is for me a subjective phenomenon. Another's toothache is for me a concept only. So, whilst I can appreciate they have a toothache, I don't feel it directly unless it's, it, unless it's my toothache. Yeah. Okay, so there is definitions because he's moving on from there using. That is his platform. So okay. he says that, that he then starts looking at, let's look at the subjective. He says that the subjective constitutes its own separate group. So, um, whilst it does that, in every man, that group is different. So in one person, um, you know, um, it, something like music could be really important, and to another person, it's not important. So it's still music, but the way we, we are subjective to it, Is personal to us. Yep. So he says, undoubtedly, the region of the subjective can expand considerably by the, by the aid of special education and training. So where he's saying objectively, the objective view of the world can't expand because it's grouped everything into this is in the group and everything else is out of the group. Subjective has the ability to expand as you experience things so your subjective world is is the growing the growing part as you experience something you start getting more knowledge and then expanding your subjective view on on the world yeah i agree okay Mm -hmm. so we continue no problem with that okay so um He then further starts talking about how the average man divides everything. And he says the average man divides everything into three groups, the subjective, the objective, and the rest of it that doesn't fall into subjective or objective. And he says that science cannot expand by continuing along the objective path because it will never be able to make a concept objective or measure the thoughts of another man. So he's still going on about the, you know, this this same concept that you know can't measure. They can't measure a lot of things that are subjective. That they're they're limited. I'm not quite sure why he's continuing to bang on about it. We've already got that about four pages ago. But anyway,
1: I don't understand either. Because but he he does this quite a bit, doesn't he?
0: yeah like he's really pushing this I think
1: you know the, the reason i'm the reason I'm unnecessarily quiet about this is because I have nothing else to say on it I've ranted about on, on about this as much mm-hmm. as is necessary
0: yep yep that's why i'm just I'm just running through the scaffold so um yeah, I'm not sure why he's continuing we, we got it, we heard it, we understood it. Uh, no need to say yep. it again. And it's not the first time in the book he said it as well. Like, you know, we're really, we're going over old ground. Um, but, but the next little bit is, is interesting because mm-hmm. he's saying that objective science is founded on subjective and cannot exist without it, i.e. it's based on the time and space, um, criteria. And these are created by the, the cognizing subject, although they don't belong to the cognizing subject. So, where when we science measures things outside of us so it's founded on the subjective but it's measuring these things that are outside of us that aren't subjective but he says um, subjective knowledge can exist perfectly without objective knowledge he's kind of making this split to say objective relies on the subjective being at the base of it but subjective can can exist without the objective So it's kind of to me saying he's saying subjective knowledge is the foundation, and objective is just a a branch of it.
1: In what way is it the foundation? Foundation.
0: Well, I I had a bit of a think about this, and I think what he's saying is that um, I can I can have a thought that's and I can think something and have my own perception of something, and it doesn't necessarily have to rely on the object. For example, if I have a feeling that feeling doesn't necessarily relate to something objective but if i'm measuring something the, the wavelength of the wave or whatever i actually have to have something to measure so Um, subjectively, I might see, um, that chair as something of beauty and someone else sees it as something ugly. That's subjective. But if I measure the length and width and whatever of the chair, um, I'm, I'm measuring the objective side of it, not the subjective knowledge of it. I'm probably a bit lost on that. I'm, I'm not sure. But that's what I was thinking he's saying that I can have something subjective independent of an object. Like a thought and a feeling.
1: A thought and a feeling is all you need to say because you know they're not they're not necessarily measurable only to you you can say oh the feeling of revulsion i get when i look at that object isn't as great as the feeling of revulsion i get there you can make a comparative measurement but somebody else won't it's not universal because somebody else might find the thing that you consider to be appalling and revolting is okay not a lot you can do about that.
0: When he says that objective science is founded on subjective, really, what does he mean?
1: It's founded on a subjective idea that somebody decides for whatever reason internally they get the impetus to actually discover something or measure something. That's what he means. Purely subjective. 30 people in a room and a certain object in the room. Only one of them gets the idea. I would, I'd like to measure that. I wonder, I wonder how wide it is. I wonder how high it is. Subjective completely subjective. It has to start from there. Somebody has to have the feeling and the impetus, the immeasurable feeling and impetus that they want to measure something outside of themselves, something objective. End of story. That's that's clearly the basis of it.
0: That makes sense. And, and so it cannot exist without that impetus. But nope. subjective knowledge can exist perfectly without that. The more, you know, your thoughts, feelings, whatever, that just they can be expanded without having any be in a room with no light and sound and whatever, and you can still have a thought.
1: That's right. And every experience you have will expand your subjective knowledge. But it'll only repl- it'll only relate to you. It cannot be universal.
0: Alright. Well, glad we cleared that up, because moving along. Aye. This bit has a lot of italics and capitalization, so I'm presuming Aspinsky really wants to make this point, so here it here it is, I'm going to read it. Um, he's talking about, um, and yet the forms of the extension of a, a thing in space and those of the existence in time are created by the cognizing subject and do not belong to the thing itself. So that's his basis of objective science. And he's saying the last consideration permits us to part with all the hypotheses of the five states of matter, energetic and psychophysical emanations, etc., all these hypotheses suffer from one common defect. They do not take into consideration the fact that materiality, materiality or energism is a complex property belonging not to the thing but to our receptivity of the thing. And that last sentence, not the thing but the receptivity of the thing, in my book is capitalized. So he's he's saying that science, science was built on a poor foundation. Mm-hmm.
1: It's nothing new, though. We just we've been talking about that the whole chapter.
0: Yeah, I know. But he had italicised and he had capitalised, so I thought I should do it. Well, I,
1: th- I think I think that you and I will agree on that. You know, that's, that hmm? modern science is it? built on a poor foundation. Yeah, I've got no yeah. problem with that. I don't, I, no problem. I don't there. even think there's anything to discuss anymore
0: on that one. No. Well, I I, I will not go over it again because you know, I'd be bored to snores as would you. But anyway, moving along. Okay, he gets on to matter. Now, are you happy to talk about matter? It doesn't matter. Boom, boom. That was almost a joke, Pete. Almost. It was in as well, but,
1: well,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. All right. Matter is the first of all three-dimensional, uh, this three-dimensional, sorry, matter is first of all three-dimensional. Yes. Matter four-dimensionals is just as impossible a thing as a square. Or triangle his point he's having a bit of a dig at um, those people that like to think that they've got other states of matter like um, clairvoyance or uh, something different existing in a different time and space so he's, he's saying that matter is three dimensional and that we have this what they, he's calling the fine states of matter where people have sort of taken the cookie cutter three dimensional and then said, in another dimension we've got the same sort of thing, but you know I'm 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 hooked into another time and space. And he, he uses clairvoyance. Um, sorry, he doesn't use clairvoyance as an example. I read about him using clairvoyance as an example when I was researching this. And I think what he's saying is that you know you can't take a three dimensional concept and then stick it into other dimensions. It's, it, it doesn't work. It's, um you know, it's, it's a square triangle concept.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm at a loss as to why he even goes down this road. I think he's confused himself and just carried on writing. Why, why is that even a point? You know, nobody tries to um, describe an objective thing, a three-dimensional objective thing in terms of feelings. They just don't. I mean, I I, I really have no idea what road he's going down here at all. And, and why it would even matter? Yeah, yeah I, I get I, uh... it. You you, 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 can't, you can't, you can't describe or label an objective, three-dimensional, positivistic, materialistic thing in terms of subjectivity. You can't. There you go. Or certainly, we have no way of working out how we can. So there you. Go. I'm, I'm up for that. Because honestly, I'm, I'm lost now. And We're going around in circle after circle after circle. Thank you, Ospensky. We got it. I understand. I understand why the foundations of um, material positivistic science are based on feet of clay. I understand that subjectivity means that we can't label things in the same way and that you can't measure objects using subjectivity in the way that you can using objectivity, but you also cannot then bring objectivity into the um, subjective plane and and expect them to keep the same labels and the same measurements. Job done.
0: So yeah, thanks, Pete. You you summarised what Spensky has taken many pages to reiterate over and over.
1: I think it's interesting. I'm not dismissing it, but I just don't need to be told again and again and again and possibly again. I just don't.
0: And what if, what can we discuss again? Like you know, we've we've discussed it. Good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we, we are. I'm more we interested in whenever
1: I come across Spensky talking about savages. That's thing that interests me.
0: I know. Well, wait till you get to the Herbert expenses.
1: I have. That's what I've just seen.
0: <laughs> Later on. <laughs> I've just seen it. So let's have a look at what is materiality.
1: Oh, must, I, I mean, I'm not going to be funny, but must we? Do you not, do you not think? No, I'm serious. I'm asking you a question. Do you not think in all of the chapters that we've now been through that we've done this to the point of, Death. It's actually killing me. Subjectively, it's making me feel. I don't need to constantly be told what materialism is. I just don't. Does anybody need now to be told this by Uspensky? He has told us what it, what he thinks it is a million times, and we, you and I, at any rate, have agreed with him.
0: Yeah, and we have spoken at length. I so think well, that, so. Yeah. So if that's the case, I, I do. I mean is Alright, let me just I will give you a brief summary of what Spence is saying about materiality just to just to keep the continuum. He says the materiality is a con- condition of existence in time and space. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And not
1: not for the first time.
0: Not for the first time. However, I think he makes an interesting well, I found this point interesting. I don't think it's repetition. No, go on. Because something exists in time and space, it can only occupy, like, only one thing or group of things can occupy the same time and space in that model, if we're looking at materiality. You know, whatever space this table I've got here takes up is, you know, it, it, it's saying that we can't have something else taking up the same space because that table's taking it up. It would like to take up some different I time.
1: would refer everybody to... Um a movie that was made in the late 1950s and then remade in the mid-1980s called The Fly. There you go. You can't have two things occupying the same space and time. Otherwise, they become muddled, don't they? There
0: you go. That's right. But, but, movie, yeah, but that's not but, the point I'm trying to make. That's just a little thing. Is treat. it not?
1: No, Good it Lord. is not.
0: It is not the point I'm trying to make. It's the, It's the forerunner to the point. So if you step outside of materiality, and you look beyond materiality, you can see that something can, that many things can occupy the same, what we see as space and time at the same time. And he gives an example. Well, well, I'm going to give an example. For example, a feeling. Um, a feeling can be in many places at the same time, and many feelings can be in the one place at the same time. So I think, you know, that, that, uh, Time and space is, you know, from that example, it's it's like materiality is so limited and that's what we're saying, you know, science is based on. But I, I, I like the concept that I never really had thought of these other things actually occupying the same time and space. I never thought of them in that way, but they kind of are. I mean, you can have feelings in a room, that a whole room full of people with different feelings and those feelings can permeate the whole room, occupying okay, yeah. the same space. Yeah, of
1: course they can but they're not objective they're subjective
0: that's exactly right so i just had i just thought it was interesting because i had never thought of i know they're not literally filling a space but i'd not actually thought of anything being being able to have well, the same time and space okay
1: let's let's make it interesting for you are they occupying the same space Because when you describe, you can have a load of people in the room and they all have, you know, they all have, you know, subjective feelings and those feelings fill the room. But do they? The room is, is described in three dimensional terms. We're just using that as the only use of language to describe something that we kind of intuitively mean, but we're not really describing. Do those thoughts fill the room? Do they? Do they get, do they expand beyond the walls of the room to fill a building? Does the culture of a company run through an entire building or does it run through... You see, see it's just, this is just a, a, a use of the, the very res- restrictive and prescriptive um, aspect of language that doesn't allow us to describe what we want to say. So I understand the phrase, yes, everybody felt so joyous and it filled the room. But that's just a, a, a turn of phrase. It doesn't mean that the thoughts actually did fill the room. The room is a three-dimensional objective thing, whereas we're just we're just describing what happened the best we can.
0: That there is no time and space for those things.
1: It's a restriction of language that that puts us into this little bind and you know, Ospensky's pointed that out many times before as well in, in earlier chapters that, you know, we are restricted by language in, in describing these things that are linguistically undescribable. We, we mm. instinctively know of them and we know what they mean to us, but, but there is no, no structure within language, language as a purely three-dimensional basis. And that's a great example that you give, the idea of thoughts filling a room. You know the the fe- uh, the feelings of a group of people going out and filling a room. That's a great example because it makes no sense.
0: Yeah, I, look, the way Spensky puts it, for what it's worth, is outside of matter, the necessity for selection is done away with. Because he's sort of saying that if you have matter, you have to, you, you've got all these things in the same base, but but you choose to just grab one of them, and that's matter. You know, that's what that matter is a selection down to the one one.
1: Now, okay. I I do agree. I do agree with that. I I absolutely agree. But you know, we—that is the whole point of the human existence we're having. I mean, yeah. I'm taking this into a spiritual realm now, and you know, oh, we we all come here to learn lessons. Well, I don't believe for a moment that we have, but whatever. The fact of it is that you know we are, we have we are here in this three-dimensional material existence and so that yes that is the foundation of what we experience uh, the, if if we acknowledge the subjective aspect of our existence then we can have a much more fulfilled and enriched existence than if we were just locked into the material positivistic part of
0: it so what Aspinsky says is outside of matter the necessity for selection is done away with And if we imagine the life of a feeling being independent of the conditions of materiality, such a being will be capable of possessing simultaneously such faculties as from our standpoint are incompatible, opposite, and limitative of one another. The power of being in several places at the same time. That's what he's saying. And I I, I kind of figured that's what he meant. Okay,
1: let's give you an example based on exactly what he said so that that makes makes a lot of sense. If I imagine myself, if I close my eyes and I imagine myself walking down, I don't know, the Rochishua Boulevard in Montmartre in Paris, then I am in effect there. Not in the 3D materialistic sense, but in another sense entirely, I am there. And that that, that means that I am, if you want to put it in these terms, occupying um, two spaces at once.
0: Mm, that's a great example, yeah.
1: and that And this is what he means... He's not trying to say that you can be in two material places at once or two, or the or not
0: no, two no he's saying get it with a materiality the
1: yeah, but beyond look in the material sense, I'm sitting in this chair talking to you, but in the flight of fancy of my mind, I'm somewhere else entirely if I choose to be so, and that's every bit as valid an experience as the being in this chair. It's only if I persuade myself that the three-dimensional thing is the only thing that's real, and that thoughts are just are nothing, that I'm limited to the three-dimensional world.
0: Yeah, and I think that's exactly what Spensky's saying.
1: I think that's what he means too. I think, you know, I th- you know, and I think he's dead right on that. You know, he is very, very much right in my, in my estimation and, and my experience of what I do.
0: Because he is leading up to how do we expand our knowledge of things outside of this conditioning that we've been, been put into, to, to even expect.
1: And I think he goes down this road, so a, a bit of a spoiler, but you know the fact is that once we free ourselves from the limitation of being told that, oh, a thought is just a thought, it's nothing, and a dream is meaningless... You know, once we lose that idea and and understand that that's as very, that's every bit as valid as the chair that you're sitting in and the material existence, then you can have a thousand experiences instead of just one.
0: And I only use a
1: thousand, you know, it's limitless actually.
0: Yeah. And look, Spencer's going to go into that.
1: Yeah, he is. I I didn't mean to do it as a spoiler, but you know, I think (laughs) it was worth mentioning.
0: Yeah. Are you happy to leave it there for this week, Pete?
1: Yeah, I, I am because, you know, I mean, okay, we've, we've got, um, three or four pages left to do, but I think it's one of those things where we've hit, we've come to the part where you don't really want to rush through this next few pages. That's what
0: I'm thinking of this chapter. Yeah, I'm thinking because
1: this, this is, this is now open to like really expansive discussion and, and some points of view that I think could be very, very interesting. He cite, he starts again, no spoiler, but he starts citing wonderful pithy little examples from from history from great philosophers and and people have written about these things to, to try to explain it one of the things that does is it it again demonstrates how limited language is everybody's trying different ways to explain the same incredible thing and we're stuck mm. with language but we can explore yeah. each one of those and i think it's worth doing it you know like the works of plotinus and so and so on I think it's really worth us taking the time to look at those.
0: I'm, I'm with you there. So uh, we're going to leave it there and come back to all of that in the next uh, next part of this conversation. So, um, you know, thanks very much, Pete, for, for this and uh, hey, for no, talking again this week.
1: <laughs> it's been brilliant. I mean, I, I love what Ospensky says in this chapter, this chapter 19. I, I agree with everything. I mean... Just one or two things where I think he got carried away with himself and didn't realise what he was saying, like that, you know, we can, the good and evil thing. I do think it was worth robustly defending the idea that he, he should have thought a bit more more hard about that.
0: Yeah, look, I'm 100% with you there, Peter. All right, well, I look forward to seeing you next week.
1: Yeah, I'll be fantastic. I can't wait.
0: Me neither. And thanks, everyone else, for listening.